Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. God bless you. Glad we can come together and study God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to speak with us. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We've come as far as verse 17. Father, we come before you, and certainly, Lord, that the heaviness on our heart, just hearing that, Lord, um, knowing that you've created every, every child special, unique, knit in the womb. And Lord, I pray that, uh, God, you will go before us here, before your people, before this PA Supreme Court, the legislation. And God, I pray you would strike this down, that you would not allow this law to come up on the books, that we, Lord, as believers in Christ who are adamantly opposed to murdering a child, would not have to fund this through our tax dollars, or any dollars for that matter. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you will move uh, heaven and earth, Lord, to stop this evil. And, Lord, certainly I, I want to lift up anybody that maybe is here that's had a, an abortion, Lord, at one time in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would also settle their heart right now this morning and allow them there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus if this was before they were born again, Lord. And certainly we know, Lord, you restore, you renew, and all things have been made new. But God, as we turn our attention to your word here this morning, we desperately want to hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to us. This important passage, Lord, it's, it's life-changing. You spoke it to your disciples 2,000 years ago on a plane. And Lord, you're going to speak it to our hearts here this morning. Lord, I can just see you standing there and let us all just come with the heart to listen, to understand. And certainly, God, as you're going to teach us to obey. So I pray all of this, and we ask all of this together, Lord. Uh, sinners that fall short of the glory of God, if it wasn't for you and your salvation that you've given us. Lord, I, I don't know where we'd be. I don't ever want to think about it. But Lord, I pray for all those that don't know you this morning, that haven't received you as Lord and Savior. And I pray, God, today will be the day of salvation for them and a day of strengthening as disciples in Christ for us. And I pray all of this for those online at home, those on the radio that are hearing this, and Lord, all over the world. In your holy name, Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. So as you heard me sort of mention in our prayer, and we prayed along with me, the passage we're going into here this morning in Luke uh, probably seems familiar to some of you that have read Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. You're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm sure many of you have read that different times uh, of your walk and uh, in reading the Bible and devotionally in Christ. However, this is a different passage, and I think sometimes people try to take a harmony of those two and bring them together, but actually, this is the Sermon on the Plain, is how it's been known. And the reason for that is that's how the Lord introduced it to us in verse 17. It is not the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll read. It actually adds some things that are additional, but it also um, takes some things that are in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and they're not included in this section. Now, you might be sitting to yourself and say, well, God doesn't, you know, he's not redundant. He doesn't repeat himself. Why, oh, why would he do this? May I just take us back 2,000 years ago for a moment? There were no recorders. There were no, uh, you know, hit the record button, let the cassette, let the Betamax, VHS, sorry, CD, or even better yet, MP3 today that we all know. There were, there were none of those technologies. And so there's no way to capture the, the, what Christ was saying to a group of men, women, disciples, or other people likewise. And so it was incredibly imperative that as Jesus Christ was traveling from location to location, especially when something was foundational, as we're going to read here this morning, he wanted everybody to understand this. 
And specifically, the attention that's slightly different here than Matthew 5 is the focus is solely on the disciples. Now, yes, there are some multitudes that are gathered around here on the Sermon on the Plain, but unlike the Sermon on the Mount, where the, the message is for the disciples and all the multitudes that are gathered, this is a discipleship boot camp for those that have come to Christ to understand how to live, how to behave, how to think, what the heart ought to be like. And he's speaking directly to the born-again believer. He's not speaking to the world. He's speaking to the disciple of Jesus Christ. And so again, foundational, pivotal, pivotal um, pivoting off of this, it's important that we understand here what and the immensity that he's trying to communicate to us here this morning. So as we look here in verse 17, we'll begin again chapter 6 in the book of Luke. And he came down with them and stood on a level place. You can underline level place. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Plain rather than the Mount. With a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem. This is, if you remember, his second year of ministry out of three years. He's now got quite a following. Hundreds and hundreds of people. He's been to villages and towns. He's healed entire towns. All of their sick were brought out to him. So his, his popularity, his name, what he's done is, is well discussed, well talked about at this time. So people are truly gathering and, and the, the, the groups are getting larger and larger. And this is incredible because as they're coming into this area, there's not a whole lot of space for all these uh, pilgrims that are traveling with him, if I can say it that way, these disciples. And they come in, and they come from Judea and Jerusalem, large areas, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear and be healed of their diseases. So we see, just like in other places that Jesus went, people knew that he could heal, that he's Messiah, that he had the, the, the ability to heal, as we read here. And he also does something that um, probably many of us don't understand entirely. He says, as well as those who were tormented, and I encourage you to circle that in your Bible, with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Now, most of us, if not all of us here, are born-again believers, but I don't want to assume that. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Today's the day of salvation. Don't walk out of this building if you haven't accepted Christ without giving a, an opportunity for me to just share my heart with you in regards to that, to share Jesus' heart with you. But as we read this here, we're, we're talking about something that many of us never experienced, and that's demon possession. Many of us came to salvation because we hit a low, but we weren't demon-possessed. And as believers in Christ, we can't be demon-possessed because he who is in us is greater than he's in the world. So we, we may not understand a lot of what this is, but Christ understands all too well these things, and he used a very specific word, an adjective, to describe this, torment. This is what these men and women and young children were experiencing, a torment by an unclean spirit. They had maybe had physical issues and, you know, sought a physician, sought a priest, sought someone to heal them. But those that were demon-possessed, you know, were written off by society as a whole at that time even. They would not have been welcomed in any of the, the areas that would have been heavily populated. They would have been told to, to go in the outer gates. Uh, gates were used to separate areas of villages, towns, cities, kind of like in those days. They would have been asked or pushed out in those areas as vagabonds. They don't fit. We can't help them. But here we see that the Lord Jesus, when he came, 
He called all, all those, especially those that needed a physician. And not just a physician for the body, but more importantly, a physician for the soul. And so he came and he healed them. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. For the power went out from him and he healed them all. You know, we read in scripture, we take this for granted. We see this day, we look back and we go, oh, that's, that's nice. That's nice that Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. Well, he's a good God. He does that. But you do realize this. There was a very, uh, not only because of the, you know, the compassion of Jesus Christ's heart, but he did this because it was scriptural. It was biblical. If you have your finger here, turn, hold your finger here, turn to Isaiah chapter 35, please. Verses 5 and 6. This is, this is foundational to the Christian faith. The Messiah, when he came, there was a set of prophetic, well, prophecies that were given by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before he ever touched terra firma that described what Messiah would do when he came to earth. The, what was his ministry to be? And so Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, the prophet speaks of the day of salvation, and he speaks of it this way in particular. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then they shall, the lame man, leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. You see, this was part of Messiah Jesus's. This was his plan. He was, he was coming to heal. He was coming to bring salvation. And the Messiah would do this. It wasn't just some man that could stand up and say, I think I'm God today, out of his mind, and sit there and say, yeah, uh, you know, you can be saved and I'm going to save you. No, no, no. There was some qualifications to that, where he was born, what he did, the ministry, and also doing what nobody else on earth had ever seen before, right? In Matthew chapter 11, just before we get a little confident this morning in our, our, our thoughts of these things, may I say it that way, by going, of course he's Messiah, of course. How could anybody question this? Well, his own cousin the forerunner, John the Baptist, at one point, because he finds himself in prison, does he not ask that very same question in Matthew chapter 11? Do you remember that? He turns around and he says, you know, he's in prison, uh, he's perplexed, and he said, you know, are you the one to come? How could this be? What, what was he struggling with? He's in prison. Messiah's here. Why is he in prison? His whole life, you know, out in the wilderness serving, and his ministry, you've heard me say it before, is how long? 18 months. Really, truly, John the Baptist's ministry was 18 months from the point that Jesus Christ began his public ministry. 18 months. All this was pivotal. All this was beginning to set up the foundation of the kingdom of God being presented before us. That's exactly what he did. But he said, are you really the coming one? Remember, he sent his disciples to him, to Jesus to ask that question. Do you remember how he responds? It's actually, we're going to read it probably next week if the Lord should tarry. Luke chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. Never seen that before. And the poor have good news preached to them. And the blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Matthew 11, and then obviously Luke 7, uh, verses 20 through 23. You see, this all alludes to the fact, and Jesus was alluding to the passage in Isaiah 35 that we just looked at this morning, that this wasn't an afterthought. This was prophetic. This is what he would do. So I, I just want us to be 
not cavalier if I say it that way here this morning, but as we read this passage and we, we read that in verse 19, and the whole multitude sought to touch him for the power went out from him and he healed them all, all, not some, but all, eight to 10 hours a day, healing like that, just praying over healing men and women, you know, those even demon possessed. And this was part of his ministry. This is what God does. Unless we get just so indifferent to it, to not recognize this is fulfilled prophecy before our very eyes. We look at it 2,000 years later and go, yeah, that's what Jesus did. But for 700 plus years, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. The closest thing that we could even, can I say, rationalize this this way this morning? We're waiting for the rapture of the church. He says he's coming again. He says, look up, your redemption draws nigh or near, okay? He tells us to be ready for these things. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, right in that passage in that area, it's going to be in a twinkling of an eye. That's 200 milliseconds. That means when you go like this, even faster than you can fathom, that's 200 milliseconds that we're going to be raptured up. But in the process of that rapture, if we're up and we're being raptured out like that, imagine opening your eyes and seeing Jesus at that moment. We all will do that. I don't know. Maybe we'll look left and right and go, oh, cool. We're together. You know, this is great, you know. Everybody just had a, you know, a free uh, car lot. They can take all the cars, you know, and it's just great. Let them have it. And the car payments will go with them, by the way. But we're up there. We're with Jesus, right? We're looking down from the mezzanines. Good seats. But we're up there, and we're trying to take this in at that moment. That is, I think, the experience that these disciples probably couldn't even articulate. But what we take for granted, what we read here in this passage in just a few verses, and he just healed all. And he just healed all. That's what he did. That's what he does. But I want us to see how significant this was. It, it would be that mind-blowing of what we'll experience, born-again believers, when we're raptured up, we turn around and look and, oh, that's heavy, man. That's heavy. I, I don't have any other words. Look at verse 20. Now, again, he, he draws our attention to who is the intended recipients of this. It's not the multitudes. It's not the world. He's very clear here. Look in verse 20. He says, then he lifted up his eyes. So the Lord begins to look up. And who does he see? His disciples, plural. His followers. Those that are born again believers of Jesus Christ that are truly following him. His disciples. And he says, blessed are the poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. It's powerful. A blessing from the Lord. Blessings to know that you're in the will of the Lord. He begins with the poor. He's not talking about the world's poor, is he? Who did he say there in verse 20 again? His disciples. <laughs> Friends, that's you. That's me. He's talking to us this morning. That's you. You're, if you're a born-again believer of Jesus Christ and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You do realize you could be born again and not a disciple. You're not following after him. You do understand that. Some people want that as fire insurance. 
you know, they, I don't want to go to hell, so Jesus, you're good enough. And, and, and that's where they place their faith. But I'm, I'm talking about uh, true doulos, uh, true bondservant in the Greek, uh, one surrendered, submitted. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's who he's talking to, a disciple, not a believer, but a disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and he lays this out. Blessed are you, poor. Well, wait a minute. I thought if I listen to Holstein and all these other guys, faith and prosperity, I'm supposed to have jets, right? Aren't you? Where's your jet? You got a jet out here somewhere? Yeah, we can be tongue-in-cheek, but it's not funny at all, is it? Because people have a false understanding. They don't know scripture. They don't know the gospel. Jesus Christ is telling his disciples, don't be surprised that when you follow after me, when you're willing to surrender, to be selfless, to be in my will, there may be times that that requires you not to be financially well off. He's not saying there's anything wrong with a blessing that God gives you in your situation where he may bless all of you financially. That's wonderful. And I would pray that for all of you. But that's not what we're striving for. That's not what we're aiming for as disciples. We're aiming to be in the will of the Lord. And if while in the will of the Lord, we have a position or a job or, and he provides for us in that way and we're provide, provided you know, abundantly, well, then praise him for that. That's wonderful. But the goal isn't to seek as many of us did when we weren't saved, for a profession. Remember the game of life? You could take one route or you could take the other route. You knew that you could get more of a salary here. You could, you know, you could go to the college. You could be a doctor. I think it was the doctor and the lawyer. They got the highest uh, salaries. And so whoever won the game was the one that finished, finished the, the, the game of life with the most amount of money. Oh boy, oh boy, that is not what Jesus Christ is showing us here. It is not about wealth. No, it's about being in the will of God. And he says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you poor. Speaking to his own disciples, blessed are you that have given up those worldly pursuits. Blessed are you that because of following me, that is mean that you aren't experiencing or um, enjoying some of the uh, other things that other people get to enjoy financially because you've made sacrifices You've made sacrifices. And even as born-again believers, if financially we're well off, we still make sacrifices because we, we, we're generous. It's for the kingdom of God. We give. We do these things, right? So either way, he says, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying here. He's directing it to the Christian, not the world, not, not a list of works either. This isn't something that, that you read and go, okay, check, check, check. I'm in. No, this has not to, nothing to do with salvation. You're already saved. You're a disciple. Now, how do you live it? This is, this is written for those that, that are legalists out there, those that want a list or something that sit there and go, well, you know, I, I'm living a good life. I'm doing these things. Therefore, according to the, you know, list in chapter 21 through 23, remember Jesus, when he dealt with the rich young man, and he came to him, he says, well, then give up everything. He, he pointed right into the one thing that was there, his God. He said, give it up. Give it all the way. Give it to the people. Oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, oh. Now it just got real. So the first thing we learn is a disciple of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be surprised if there's poor here, us, because we've given up the riches of this world. Again, doesn't mean we all are. God blessed many of you in this room. Praise the Lord. Blessed are you who hunger now. So I think of our missionaries a lot of times. We support missionaries. They go into the mission field. 
There's no guarantee. They don't know. They, they're stepping out in faith. They're going where the Lord is directing their paths. But they have no idea their wherewithal. I mean, they may raise up enough money to buy a ticket and get there necessarily. But what happens after that? There's no guarantee. What if this church or other churches were going to, what if the giving, or we didn't have the giving, we couldn't support them? What if the giving trends down? What happens if we can't send them what we normally committed to send them, right? They don't go, well, pack it up. That's it. It's all over. Now we're done. No, because they still have their calling and election. This is the idea that there are many of us that, that by, by answering the call, and I don't mean as a pastor, I mean of ministry, of a servant, of a child of God. By answering that call, it's led to, at times, hunger. Certain things that you could even abstract from this is flesh. Certain things that we aren't given to. A Bugatti, or however you say that, you know, a $4 million vehicle, right? You know? No, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to drive a Rolls Royce or a Bentley or whatever. No, no, no. That's okay. You know, I, I don't need that. But this also speaks to those that are in other countries. They're just, they're just trying to eat. I remember when I went over on a missions trip to Central America, and I was with a group of people, a tribe of people. And if you'd go between tribe to tribe, they would protect you. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful time. I went over there to do a vacation Bible school with the children to get a lot of the children saved. And I, I was leading a team over there. And we were in the jungle about three hours from any civilization that way. It wasn't super far out, but it was enough to where you don't know what's going to happen. And um, it was my first mission trip. And I remember seeing, you know, for breakfast, it was water with sugar. And they would cut the side of the, the baggie, like a baggie, the corner of it. And that was so it would like a cup. And that was breakfast. And if you were very fortunate, uh, one of the young children would climb up and get like a mango or a papaya or something like that and, and share it with you. And that was, a, that was an amazing, generous treat. And then, then there was rice sometimes because we would bring rice and give different things and we'd cook up that rice. And somebody, um, you know, I remember a woman, I was over there, she, uh, she had a machete. Normally you'd be scared with that, but no, that means she's cooking. And that's good because your belly's hungry, right? Just like we're reading here. She turned around. She, you, you ever seen, you know, remember the old Rocky movie? Catch the chicken, catch the chicken, you know? Uh, just let the video play. She literally goes out back. Grab, but boom, all in one movement. Like, I, I was like, you're, I love you. Not as a sister in Christ. I love you because we're eating and we got protein tonight. No bugs. Sweet. So she did, and, and she boils the whole thing up. The best rice and chicken I've ever had in my life. You know why? Because it was made with love, man. My wife can make rice and chicken. My wife can cook. Man, but I was like this. But there's times when she made that sacrifice, that meant that they wouldn't have protein for two months. So that those foreigners, me, coming in to give them the gospel could have that special treat. That was their way of taking care of me and loving me. I was wrecked by that. I was forever changed. And I'm sure you've had your, your experiences like that in ministry and different things, whether it's in another country or right in your own neighborhood where you met somebody where they're at. 
But he says, as a disciple, you're, you're going to hunger. There's going to be times you're going to go without so that other people can be blessed. That's, that's, he says, you're going to be filled. He's not just talking about the temporal. He's talking about eternally. There will be coming a time in heaven. You'll never hunger again. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This idea of weeping. I weep often. I read the word of God, I weep. My wife sort of laughs at this point. You know, I watch, she's, what's Bashajan now? You know, I just, I, I'm in Psalm 5. I'm just, you know, why? Because I meet with the living God. He shows me my heart. He shows me how he loves me in spite of me. And I just see the depth and the pearls that are in here. You do. You all do the same. I know you do. We all do. But the idea is, is that Isaiah 5 also talks about how the world's being called good, but it's really evil, or they're calling evil good and good evil. Isaiah chapter 5 speaks of that. And we're living in those days. We're living in the days where it said in the last time, said one of the signs would be a cold heart, that hearts would grow cold. Oh, my. I was just talking with somebody this last week. They work in the restaurant um, business, if I can say it that way, establishment. She's been doing this for years. She went up to, to just bring a drink, and whether it's a Sprite instead of a Coke, and she got her, the person just takes it and throws it in her face. Because you got the wrong flavor or soda? And if that wasn't enough, I, look at your cities and the cities that are going around us, New York City, New York, where I'm from. Uh, you know, the fact that elderly men or women, for that matter, watch this guy, there's a video, this guy's walking by, and he's just, they're standing kind of in the sidewalk, they're talking, and the guy just walks by, and because the older gentleman and the younger gentleman are sitting there in his path, rather than excuse me or walk here, he just grabs that, throws him down. This, you know, 80 something plus years old. I don't know if he busted his hip, but he's on the ground. I mean, what is that? How, how can that man reconcile that? He doesn't understand that. That wasn't in his generation. Those things don't happen like that. Our police force. Now look, I, wonder, I understand there's good and bad in every Every profession. I get that. But our police force, those men and women that try to protect us, try to help us, you know, you dial 911, somebody's breaking into your house. They come into that house, they don't know what they're going to find. Somebody with a gun pointed at their face, they have no idea. But they risk their lives to protect you and I. And yet, we see in Philadelphia and some other cities now, they're, they're, Squad car, they're in their cop, I'm sorry, I'm dating myself, they're in their police officer car, whatever they call it now, and they're turning around and they're doing a report and somebody just comes up point blank, points a gun and pulls the trigger and blows their brains out. How, how do you make sense of that? You can't. It's evil. It's demonic. So what does that do? You, you, we're going to read a woe here in a minute, but, but this is the blessing. He says, as a disciple, you're going to see a lot of difficult things. A lot of things that go contrary to the Bible. A lot of things that don't bear witness to your spirit. And it's going to break you. It's going to humble you. It's going to bring you to your knees in tears. And there's nothing wrong with you because of that. I want you to understand that. I, I counsel. I've had people come in and, that, Pastor, I think something's wrong with me. You know, years ago, this stuff didn't bother me. Now it's bothering me more than ever. Well, yeah, you're living the last the last days. No, I get that. But this is heavy. I said, I understand. And they said, it's just like, it's overwhelming. I'm seeing things like I never saw before. It's because they're pressing into their relationship with Jesus. And the, it's, it's, it's real. And they said, I, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm just, I've got such a depth of sorrow. 
And then I always remind him, what does Ecclesiastes 7.3 say? That the sorrow does what? It changes the heart. It draws the heart near. It's better than laughter. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes 7.3, better than laughter. You don't hear that from the world. The world says, oh, you got to laugh more because then you feel better. No, you're distracted then. We're not to run away from these things. We are the salt and light. This is our time. We may be the last generation. I don't know. I don't know the time of the hour. Nobody does but the Father in heaven. But this is our time where we are light amidst the darkness. We have the word of God. Everything we need is right before us. We just got to live it out. And we got to understand these things and allow it to change our hearts. Allow it to calibrate us. Because right now, there's probably some people sitting here this morning that goes, man, I... I thought there was something wrong with me. Nothing wrong with you. Jesus said 2,000 years ago to his disciples right then and there. If you're a disciple after me, expect these things. They're going to be normal for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're going to weep. But he says you're going to laugh one day. Not laugh at the people. You're going to laugh because when you're in heaven, there is no more tears or sadness or sorrow. But not only that. It's because everything will be made right. Justice will be served. And those that are practicing lawlessness and evil and iniquities, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. We don't want that. We want them to get saved. But the reality is, is there will be no more wheat among the chaff. It will be separated. The chaff will be taken, burned into a furnace of fire, you know, and the wheat will go and do what? Live forever with Jesus. That's what our hearts all long for this morning. Don't, doesn't your heart long for that? I, my heart longs for that. It, it, it groans for that. That's why we're here together. That's why we're studying the word of God and not just, a, you know, having a social gathering in another building. No, we're not playing church. We're not playing Christian. That's what he's addressing here. The temptation of that, the, the, the comfort or compromise of that. Blessed are you when men hate you. When, now, by the way, this is, he's going to make it clear. Not because you're being a jerk. That's not what he's talking about here. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they, ex, they exclude you and revile you and cast you out or cast your name as evil. They say evil things about you and you've done nothing wrong. You might not even know them. You just walk in the room, but your witness, the Holy Spirit in you just bears such a witness that they just can't stand it. And they just walk out of the room and storm it. You're like, what did I say? What did I, I just, hi, nice to meet you. He says, for the son of man's sake, right? So, so three, three or four things here we should, we should sort of just recount as we've gone this far. First one, poverty, that, that idea of, of not enjoying life's comforts to its fullest. It's a part of the Christian walk. There's a choice there. And many times following the Lord means that we will experience poverty or difficulty. The second thing is hunger. It means that our flesh may desire certain things that we have no business going near or touching. Third thing is sorrow, deep sorrow and weeping. And the fourth thing is persecution. It should not be odd to the Christian when we face persecution for the namesake or the son of man, it's the God, for Jesus. We shouldn't find that foreign. You know, the irony of this is 
I can think 20, maybe, I don't want to date the particular time, but many, many years ago, I can remember being born again. I can remember sitting in a pew and I can remember reading these things. I was in a Calvary. I was going line by line, much like you are this morning. Found a place where I actually got the word of God and I was going line by line. And I remember reading this and oh man, did I have a check in my spirit. I was convicted because I went, wow, I, I don't think about any of these things. I haven't thought about the fact that this is part and parcel of the Christian walk. That it's not, what are my dreams and what are the things that I want to attain in life? My career goals and those things. Now, again, nothing wrong with that if it's in the will of the Lord. But I'm saying striving against the grain of the Lord. And I remember when these things were revealed to me by the Lord and I was reading them. And it was taught to me like you. And I sat there and I was like, Lord, examine my heart. And from that day forward, everything began to change. I began to run my heart, my mind through the grid of this scripture. I certainly haven't arrived, but I have been recalibrated. You remember the old GPSs? I know the new ones don't do this anymore, but the old ones, I used to like it, recalculating, recalculating, and it would turn you back around. Man, I would read this, and I felt like the Lord was going, recalculating, recalculating, Matthew, recalculating. I'd say, again, Lord, he'd say, oh, we're just getting started, son. I said, okay. Please don't let it hurt. He says, oh, no. He says, I'm getting rid of the dross. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to salt the fire. I'm going to purify. I'm going to get rid of the dross. He's still getting rid of the dross. He's faithful to finish that good work he's begun. He goes on to say, rejoice in the day and leap for joy. Why? Because you're ever closer to the Lord's heart. Because when he was on this earth 2,000 years ago, this is the very experience he had. They spit in his face. They reviled him. They beat him. They crucified him on a cross. And he allowed it so that the atonement could be paid for our sin. But the wickedness of humanity and the evil against God, how much more? Or not God. How much more when it's easier to do something like that to one of his children to get at him as the devil so often wants to do keep us from glorifying the living God that's why he's speaking to the disciples here for indeed your reward is great in heaven aren't you glad he didn't say it's pretty so-so go see go see so it's my you know so-so a little bit here a little bit there no no he says great when God says great he means great it is not grammatically challenged He's going to be great in heaven. Notice he didn't say it's going to be great on earth. And it's, you know what? You will have that jet. It's just going to come in the latter years. No, no, he didn't say that. He says in heaven, because it's not about the temporal. Wood, hay, stubble. It's all going to burn. It really is. He's got the eternal focus because that's the focus we need to have. This is just a little, little fraction of a seed, our lives. When you consider the eternal, the span of eternity. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. I'm very visual. I'm a visual learner. As I think about this, and I not only see the words in red, you know, the words that jump off the page, what he's saying to you and I is you're walking in good and familiar footprints. Some of you know on my day off, I like to do a code enforcement. I still do that to keep myself very much not just in these four walls. 
And so I get out and I, I like to be around um, even the unsaved and just, you know, bring the gospel and I do those things. And um, I had to go out recently to do a footer inspection just this last week. Some of you know what footers are. And I was out and sometimes when you go out to do footer inspections, you got to go through mud. And especially with the weather and the freezing and the, you know, it was, I mean, I had my boots on up to, you almost up to your knee because when you step down in, you go, you're right in, right? And I had the video playing in my mind as I was receiving this, is it's, it's the Lord walking before me. And I have a choice. I can walk in the different, I'm going to sink. I'm going to, I'm going to try to make my own track or I, or in the snow, the same thing. If some of you are more familiar with snow in a, a deep snowstorm, you might have your mom, your dad, your great, somebody important, they'll step in the deeper. And then what do you do? You you walk in their footprints. Why? So you don't fall in, so you don't fall. It actually protects you, but you can see where the path is laid out. He said, just like your fathers did to the prophets, the idea is, is you're walking in familiar territory. This is what happened since the beginning of time from Genesis 3 onward, when evil and sin was introduced. He said, that it's like, it's the same manner. Your family, your parents, your ancestors, the prophets, they did this. Common. You shouldn't think it foreign to you for such a thing to happen. Now, he, he adds something here we don't see in Matthew 5. We, we don't get this. And it's these woes. And again, this is very sobering. Not only does he add the blessing, and again, all his blessings surrounded, you might be looking and going, I don't know if that's really the, the blessing that I was thinking of, a blessing, but they are, they're blessings to know that you're truly a disciple and you're walking in these things. And if, if you read these things and you're like, I don't know what it is. I haven't given up um, the comforts and the, and the self and, and there's no death to self here. You might want to examine that with the Lord. Only the, the Lord can be your judge, but there should be some things that kind of go, yeah, these are familiar, you know. These, some of these things are familiar. We've, we've made sacrifices. We've made choices. We choose to follow God. We choose not to follow the world. And, and that comes at a cost to all of us. But woe to you who are rich, for you received your consolation. He's, he's describing that. Remember, he says, blessed are the poor. Again, he's talking to his disciples. He says, woe to you that want to turn around and have your cake and eat it too. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, woe to you that, and I think of Matthew, the tax collector. He would have been a, a really good example of this because he was very, very wealthy. We just read about him last week, you know, back in uh, chapter five of verse 27, we read about this man. He ran from religion. He ran from all that. We know that because he was a Levite. He was supposed to be a priest. Obviously, Matthew, the Levite, you know, Levi, he was supposed, but he ran from religion because he didn't want anything to do with the hypocrisy of the church leaders of that day and what was going on in the, you know, the, the temple and the, the, the Sanhedrin and all of that. So can you imagine, I said, like Jesus looking right at Matthew's eyes and he's like, you're, the, you're, you're, you're him, you're the real deal. This, is, this isn't religion, this is relation. You're, this is it. And what did he do? He, he turned around and had a party. He said, man, everybody come on over. And then Jesus was there. And we know the... Pharisees came by and tried to, you know, derail the whole thing by casting doubt. They didn't go to God. They went directly to the disciples to do that. Sow seeds of doubt. But what if Matthew, at this point, walking with Jesus, would come back and go, Hey, Jesus, you know, I've been thinking about this. And um, I know 
I gave up a lot. Like I, I, I can't, I'm not a tax collector anymore. I'm following you. I'm, 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 you know, I'm a fisher of men. I'm, I'm spreading the gospel. I'm, I'm living for you, Lord. But I really miss those custom slippers. Like they were super good. And they had our thought, you know, there was like, they were custom for my foot. And I could, st- I was, oh man, or the robes or the food or all of these wonderful things, the houses I had. And, you know, Jesus, I want both. Why can't I have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? We call that a believer, not a disciple. And what he's laying out here, he says, no, no, no. He says, those, woe to you. Those that now put the kingdom of God first and yet strive and go back after the riches of this world. Because you're divided. You're divided. You can't serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You're divided. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying there's anything wrong with having wealth. If God blesses you with wealth, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not the aim. The aim is your relationship with Jesus Christ. The aim is the gospel. The aim is the kingdom of God. He said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you, he said. And I think this is going to be a very heavy passage for many, to be honest with you, many people that call themselves Christians. I think one day they're going to stand before Jesus and he's very adamant here about these things. And I think it's going to be quite honestly a surprise because either they don't know the word or they've read the word but said that doesn't apply to me. But woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. You wanted what you wanted. I gave you what you wanted and you were content in that apart from me. Woe to you who are full. You're going to hunger. Please notice that. You shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Wait a minute. I thought when we get to heaven, there is no tears. He wipes away every one of them from our eyes. There is no mourning. Remember, he said, there's going to be blessed of you. You're going to be joyful, rejoicing. Well, what's he really saying here then? That there's some people that will call themselves disciples of God, Christ, Christians. And yet, there's going to come a time where they stand before Jesus Christ And they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I did not know you. That's that's heavy, man. He's talking to disciples. He's not talking to the world. Back in verse 20, right? This is heavy stuff. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. You know what? Remember the, the vigil? A chameleon, a lizard, something that changes like that all the time. You know, you're at work, you're one way. You're at home, you're another way. You're, you're, you're with your friends, you're another way. It's this idea that who are you? Who am I? I'll use my heart. Who am I? You know, it, I used to, you know, I, I, I share this with the office, the pastors, the staff here. This isn't not eight to four, or nine to five. This isn't something that we just, as pastors or, or anybody in ministry, all of you, this isn't something we just do from Sunday morning from, you know, three, four hours as we gather, right? Or, or something we do on, on Wednesday night when we gather for a midweek study. This is who we are. We're inseparable from Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we're around other people, they ought to be constantly getting and bearing a witness of a testimony of our hearts. We may be only be the, you know, our lives may be the only Bible they actually read. A living epistle be known by men and women, Corinthians, right? So, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. 
because you're a people pleaser and you get, it's not that, by the way, he's not saying that you're, you're a good person. You just get along with everybody. That's wonderful. That's not what he's, he's saying, woe to you when you change to meet, you know, an individual situation. In other words, you compromise. You compromise when you're this way, but when you're in church, you know, praise the Lord, and you got the holier than thou going on, and how are you today? Oh, I'm great, brother. Meanwhile, you just, you know, fought in the car on the way here with your wife and the kids, and everybody's screaming, and you're fighting with them, and you shut you be quiet. This the whole thing that's going on, and the minute you get to that door at the front of the building there, you're like, praise the Lord, brother. Good to see you all today. How are you? I'm great. I don't do that. How are you doing? I'm horrible, man. That 15 minutes on the way here, I think the devil's in the back seat. Like, it's bad. Well, I'm glad you're here, brother. Come on in. Let's sit down. Let's... Here's a hug first. Love you. Know what you mean. Right? We don't got to fake this. We don't got to play Christian. We don't got to play church. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And I, on Wednesday, we've been studying in the Old Testament. I encourage you all to be out here. I keep saying that, but it's because I have a desire that you know the word of God. First Corinthians 10 says, these things are an example for you, born again believers, new covenant believers today. This is, a, this is something for you and I today. It's not, although that happened 3,000 years ago. No, 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 this is for us today. They're examples, so we don't repeat the same mistakes. But that's a choice, isn't it? That's a choice. But I say to you, and that's not to guilt anyone here, by the way. I'm just saying it's an honest choice. I just want us to all be transparent about that. But I say to you who hear, now this is where, if you read this passage, man, um, this is heavy stuff. As I was mentioning, you know, on Wednesdays, we're, we're reading about the prophets of the false. They, they love the, the prophets of Baal. Jezebel, you know, who introduced uh, pagan worship, Baal worship, because we're at the town she was from. They loved it. You know, Ahab, sure, let's do this whole thing. We'll take Jerahams, Jorams, or Jeroboam's, excuse me, I meant to say, Jeroboam's uh, calf worship. We'll, we'll take a little sprinkle of that here. We'll take a little bit of the Baal worship from Jezebel with Ahab, and we'll make this concoction, and we'll call it um, worship. We'll call it religion. It's a lie from the pit of hell is what it is. They love these false prophets. Oh, you're going to do very well. As we continue in Kings Chronicles, we get there. We're going to see that even the prophets are going to turn around and be like, other than maybe Daniel or, you know, a lot of the prophets that are of these kings, they're going to turn around, they're going to lie or demon possess one or the other. I can't, I don't know which one, but the point is they're going to have an unclean spirit in some capacity. Some of them must because they're going to turn around and do what? They're going to turn around and tell them, oh, no, 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 you don't need to think of Daniel right before, you know, the Babylonian invasion, you know. No, 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 you just, you just keep on keeping on. No, 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 God doesn't want you to. You know, meanwhile, Daniel's sitting in a, in a jail cell at one point because the kings and everybody, well, one king will listen to him, but most of them, they're rejecting what he has to say as the truth. This is, come on, guys, this is society. Just get on with it. Times have changed. We're just, why, why aren't we adjusting and adapting? It's okay. We never stop to ask the question, should we do these things? You know, we're like growing calves with like, you know, DNA from other animals. We're trying to create. I mean, like, what are we doing? Are we like Frankensteins? What are we doing? People aren't stopping to say, should we do these things? Are these things good? You know, and if you open your mouth, oh, you're one of them. You're one of those. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. (laughs) 
I love this passage. Man alive, I love this passage. But without Christ, without God, it can't be done. And yet, God commands it. This is a required course for the disciple. It's a required course for the disciple. But I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. Just so you understand in the Greek, the idea here is not just, it, it does imply when he says strike because it's the open hand. It's, it's almost implying the back of the hand. Okay, it's not, and the idea behind it isn't just a frontal physical strike. That's, at face value in the Greek, you could take that. Um, it, it would, it, it's not an idiom. You could take that as a literal understanding in the Greek of what it's saying, but it's more. It's describing the internal aspect of this as well, which is when somebody tramples on your heart, right? That's not something that you pull out and lay on the ground. We use that saying, you know, boy, my heart's broken or it's been trampled. Uh, it's not like somebody reached in, grabbed it, put it on, and then put it back in, right? Didn't you understand here. That's what this is implying. This is far harder than what it reads in the English. Tim, who strikes you on the cheek, turn the other. It looks simple. Okay, so you strike me here, I just go like this. Hey, I can get over that. Slap me all day long. You know, it's not six hours on a cross, as one of my sisters would say. You know, it's, you know I can do that. But this is talking about when someone wrongs me in any capacity in my heart when I hurt, continue to give them my heart. Don't put a barrier up. Don't push people away. Continue to offer your heart to them, even though you may know well that you can't trust them with your heart. How about it? Tim who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you. He's telling you, be generous. Be generous with your finances. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your heart. It's beautiful, but he's also saying, don't enable sin. He says that in the Proverbs. You, you know the saying, you, you, you shouldn't eat unless you what? Work. Now, he's not talking about people that are disabled or cannot work. That, that's a different story. He's talking with someone who has the ability to or capability to, right? There's nothing wrong. They just, they maybe are lazy or slothful. They just don't want, that's what we're talking about in the Proverbs, right? Someone who likes that, if they don't, they shouldn't eat. Why? Because you're enabling a behavior. Now, I don't need to give you a case study for that because right now in our country, with 300 million something people, you got the biggest case study going on of that than you ever want to see. There ain't no double blind placebo type study you need after what we're seeing today because our inflation is out of control because when you give people money, people, the cost of goods continue to go, you get the, I'm, I don't need to break economics 101 out on you in a micro macro scale, but you understand. There's nothing free that way. It's good to do good. You know, I heard a politician about a year ago. I don't bring usually politics in, but I heard a politician a year, maybe I do, I don't know if I do or don't. But a year ago, I heard a politician say, hey, he says to one of the other people, he says, he was kind of, uh, I think, more on the liberal side. He says, hey, why aren't your people following the Beatitudes? I mean, you know, all the Republicans, they don't follow the Beatitudes. He's talking about the Sermon on Mount Matthew 5. And I thought, does he understand what he's really saying here? 
Like God is saying, yes, be generous. Absolutely. But God is not in any way saying to compromise and enable sin. And then you have to take, just like all of scripture, you have to take the big pitch. You have to take all of scripture, the whole counsel of God, all 66 books. He goes on to say, and, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, also do to them likewise. The only way you can do this is if you have a life surrendered to accomplish this. It requires Christ Jesus to be at the center of your life. Not your feelings. Not your emotions, because those can betray you. Right? Because those same feelings could be steeped in pride, which is why I don't want to change or why I don't want to see these things at face value, literally, as God is teaching them to me. I want to say, well, but he means that. No, he, he's very literal here. He's saying, this is what I expect from my disciples. If you are truly a disciple and a disciple indeed, we will fall into these things and we will pray to God and ask him to conform our heart into the likeness and image of God. And our hearts will be conformed more like Jesus and less like our sin nature. Less like who we were before being born again. That's the only way we can do these things is when we truly live selfless. You want, you want great marriage counseling? Live selfless and not selfish. Because I assure you, every problem in a marriage begins with self. It's never one person or the other. It's, it's, it's self-ish. And if you want a beautiful, perfect marriage, live selfless. And both parties need to do that, certainly. He goes on to say, look at sinners, love those who love them. You know, they even do that. The sinners do that. Well, that's pretty heavy. Wait a minute. How, how does that work? It doesn't cost you anything. It, 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 living like the world lived doesn't require you to take up your cross and die to self. To live that way. This is extraordinarily different. We're being told to die to self here. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that for you? For even sinners lend to sinners who receive much back, as much back. But love your enemies and do good. Lend hoping for nothing in return. And reward with will be great. And you will be the sons, children of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. He is. He was kind to me when I didn't deserve it. And I was mocking him. He saved me. He saved me from my addictions. He saved me from me. He did it in spite of me. Because I was evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your father is also merciful. You know, have a heart. We are living epistles. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Given it, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Just pause and think about this for a minute, what Jesus is saying here. This is heavy stuff. The measuring rod that will be measured back to you is the one you measure others with. That's heavy stuff. And he spoke, to a, he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Right? They didn't have devices like they have today or, you know, a cane that way to kind of feel their way around. No, no, no. He says, you'll both end up in a ditch. A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. 
It, this is what this is saying is be careful who you have put as an influence in your life. Many a men have put their father as an influence. Many a women have put their mother as an influence or, or somebody like that in their life. And they walk contrary to the Bible. What he's actually saying here, and I'm only saying that because our parents are, in, are certainly loving to us. But if they go contrary to the word of God, no. What did Jesus say? I'll tell you my mother, brother, sister, those who do my, what? The will of my father. Again, I'm, I, mothers and fathers are important. I love that. And, I, you know, uh, I have four boys. I, I want them to obey dad and mom. But if I walk contrary to, to the Lord, contrary to his Bible, I, I want them to walk with Jesus. I want them to choose Jesus before they choose me. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who's perfectly trained will be like his teacher. He says, that person you put as influence in your life, you're going to become just like them. Whoever you, the person is that you put in that place, it ought not to be a man or a woman. It ought to be Jesus alone. It ought not to be a husband or a wife, right? I've seen many a husband, many even in ministry, many husbands lead their wives astray and vice versa. I've seen it in ministry. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying Jesus has to be that point of influence. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? This idea is dust um, from wood. Maybe, maybe you, you know, when you're cutting two by four and you see some of the dust, that's all thin or small. But do not perceive the plank in your own eye. I don't know about you, but my sin always looks worse on you. I'm more than happy to point out your sin that I, by the way, relate to. Because isn't that how that works? That's not Holy Spirit discernment, you know? Sometimes, <laughs> I think we can all be transparent with each other. Sometimes we recognize something like that in someone's life because it's maybe a little close to home. Maybe we struggle with the same sin and we see it. We identify it because we're too familiar with it ourselves. And then we see it in somebody else's life. And what do we do? You've got some sin in your life. Meanwhile, we got the same sin, but we go up to, I can help you with that. You can't help them with that. You can't help yourself with that. How do you think you're going to help them with that now, right? That's not who I want to go and get my counseling from. I want to get my counseling from someone that does not struggle with that sin. Not that they can't relate to it. Maybe they've been saved out of it, right? An addiction or something. That's fine. But look what Jesus says. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? You know what he says? You're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite if I do that. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your other eye. Very good wisdom from our Lord. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns. That would be silly. Nor do they gather grapes from bramble bushes. You don't go to an apple tree to get an orange, and you don't go to an orange tree to get an apple. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, which is what Christ is changing, brings forth good and evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart, speaking to disciples, brings forth evil. So we may not be able to judge the heart, but we can certainly be fruit inspectors. We can see these things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's talking about the heart attitude. We'll close with uh, verse 49 here, but why do you call me Lord, Lord? Again, sobering at this way. He's talking to disciples, people that say, I believe you are Lord Jesus. Some might even suggest they believe they're born again. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? That's that idea of obedience. He desires, what, obedience 
over sacrifice. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is, he is like. He's going to give them an example. And he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Now, I've mentioned I do residential, sometimes commercial inspection. One of the things that you do before you build a building is you put footers in, okay? First, you'll go out and you'll dig and you'll get virgin ground. Why is that? If you don't do that, your building will settle unevenly, which can cause problems. It can cause sometimes in your houses, you'll see above your, your, your door jams, you'll see kind of like cracking or in the corners. It's because it was not, potentially did not settle evenly on virgin ground. So you go below frost line, guaranteed, so that the frost doesn't cause the building to heave. Obvious, right? You go down further, deeper, till you get to the place of virgin ground, pure. You got to go deep with Jesus, deep with the Lord. It's not a surfacey based relationship. You're going deep. You're digging. It requires effort. Your any relationship does. You're, dr you're digging deep with the Lord. You're surrendering. You're putting in the work. It's a relationship, just like your marriage is a relationship that requires work. Your relationship with the Lord, the same way. You're digging deep. You go down deep. You get to this place of virgin earth. What do you do? Well, depending on the size of the wall you're going to put on there, right? You're going to put down a footer, right? And you're going to do minimum uh, you don't care about any of that. You're going to turn around and put some men in certain PSI, and you're going to lay a wall on that footer. Because if you do anything contrary to that, it could crack, it could break, and a part of the building could collapse, or at least settle inaccurately, incorrectly, which can cause... Anyway, so the point, I'm, I'm like, shut it down, shut it down. We're over time. Shut it down. So the point is, is he is laying this out. Jesus is laying this out in a way that we can all understand what he's giving us as a spiritual application of the heart. He's explaining what happened. Now, there's something really cool that he does here that if you maybe have never built a house or you've never done this, you might not recognize why this is so significant. He describes a rock. Now, to us, we might think a rock. When you're actually going in to put footers, as a matter of fact, when I come out to do the inspection, if I came to your site and you're doing a commercial or residential building, I arrive there. One of the first things that I do is I walk around the perimeter and I expect for rocks. If there's small rocks, you have to remove them. I won't pass it otherwise because I know it's going to cause a form in the void. You're going to have air around the concrete. It's going to cause that concrete to crack and become frail. So I want all stone and rocks out of there. However, as you dig deep, and this happens sometimes, maybe they're going to put a basement in, but they, they can only get three foot down because what do they hit? A rock that's so big that even with their excavation, even when they're blasting, they can't get through it. And they say, what do we do? We've gone down as far as we can and we've hit rock. And you know what the code says? We recognize even, even outside of the Bible, the world understands this. When you hit the rock like that, you build on top of it. You don't dig any further. You don't disturb any soil more around that because it's going to move if it's large enough and big enough, it's going to move. This is engineering. It's physics. It's going to move along with the earth that's in that area. That's why there's seismic low, you know, different things. That you, out west and in Florida, you worry more about tornadoes and, no, you know, or hurricanes and those kind of things. Midwest, you get the point. So you build a building and you put it on the rock because you know that no matter what happens, that that rock is not going to move. It's actually more firm. And it's settled, and it's, it's not going to settle any further. It is actually the grounding point. 
because even when you just dang down, dug down on virgin soil, you're still going to get a little bit of settling. With that rock, you won't. It's been there hundreds of years. It's not moving. That's what he's drawing our attention to. But if you're not in the building industry, you didn't understand that about engineering, you might think, oh, okay, he's the rock. No, no, no. He's saying something very substantial here. It's very, very substantial. You don't mess with it. There's nothing else like it. You build on it. You don't disturb anything else around it. He's like a man who's building a house, who dug deep. There's the depth of relationship. The foundation and laid the foundation on the rock. That's Jesus. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Again, that rock is that anchor. It's not moving. It can't move. Because for it to move, you literally have to have a void within the soil, like at least 10 to 12 feet around it and below it. It's not going to happen. You have that, you're going to have a collapse of that. You're going to have a sinkhole. Okay, that's what it would require. It would require a sinkhole to move that rock. And even with that, many times it stops the sinkhole when you have a large rock like that because it keeps a void from the air penetrating because water and air take the path of least resistance. It goes around it, right? This is what he's trying to say. It's brilliant. It's brilliant by the Lord to give us such a concrete example. No pun intended. So he says, but he heard and did nothing, right? But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation. This is significant. And I'll leave you with this last thought here because this is how Jesus closes his sermon out. It's a moment of reflection. This is what this is right now for you and I. It was for those disciples that were standing on that plane. And it's the same thing for you and I. He leaves us with this concrete example here that is a moment of reflection for us all. Because he wants us to reflect on these things, to understand and to run our lives through this grid. What he's effectively saying is, when you build the house, you can't really see the difference until you know what's below, the depth of it, what it's built upon. If I took and built a house and I didn't put it on a foundation and I built a house and I did, from all exterior purposes, they look the same. Problem with wheat and chaff. They look the same to some extent. You walk in the house, oh, they can put granite in. They can upgrade all this. They can make it look pleasing to the eye. Equal, but they're not because eventually one's going to settle and crack and one won't. The problem is you don't know which house you're moving into until that storm hits. If you can't see below ground and it wasn't inspected, you don't know. It's not till the storms of life hit that reveal where you've built that house. And then, and only then, because circumstances are going to happen. Storms are going to happen. Oncologists are going to call you know, financial debtor, they're going to call sometimes in your lives. You know, job bosses are going to call. There's going to be terminations. Those things are going to happen in life. And it's not until those moments of trial and testing that we actually understand the rock we're built on. It's either the depths through our relationship with Jesus Christ or it's just ground that's not built on anything secure. And that the minute the streams and the things come by, it's all going to collapse. This is absolutely frightening to think that somebody can play Christian or live a life and actually convince themselves that they are either a, a believer or born again or turn around and even more so a disciple and yet not listen and obey the very word of God that he's given us supernaturally. God breathe to follow.
I don't think it gets any realer than that, friends. And this isn't to convict anybody or browbeat anybody. This begins in my heart here. I'm telling you, honestly, this begins in my heart. I run, I get recalibrated every time I read this. Okay, Lord, begin in my heart. Because this is heavy, what you just said. You're telling me people can have house, they can think, but then that storm comes and we find out awful quickly what it's built on. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently. And immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Great because they believed the house would stand. They didn't fear wanting, lacking. They didn't fear obedience or understand discipleship. They were all just focused on the outside and the outward instead of the inward transformation of the heart. Father, I come to you this morning, Lord, and I ask, do this work in us. Lord, this is how you ended your sermon here on the plain. And Lord, you were calling those disciples that had gathered around you to, to really think about these things. And you didn't do it to browbeat them, Lord. You did it because you loved them and you wanted them to be restored and you wanted them to know where they stood on things. God, I just pray. I pray for this church. I pray for all those that hear this on the radio and Lord, for all those that are watching online, Lord, let us, God, give us a true spiritual 2020. Help us, Lord, to run our lives against the grid of scripture here and find out if we come up wanting. And if so, Lord, let us dig deeper and lay our salvation on you, that true rock that doesn't move. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy to be praised. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief at times. Forgive us for settling and compromising. Lord, forgive us for falling short. We know. And maybe sometimes we, we deceive even ourselves. Lord, I pray, don't allow us to do that any longer. Lord, I pray for the, the man or woman that's here this morning that doesn't know you, that's never received salvation, that, Lord, I, I read these things and they, they hear these things and maybe they even hear it on the radio and they're driving in their car right now, Lord, and they're hearing these things. Lord, I pray you first have them pull over. But second, Lord, you would speak your love into their heart, that they would know that if they just call upon you and believe, Lord, you'll take care of the heavy lifting. You'll take care of all the excavation. And you'll build that. You'll lay that foundation for them. Because it's all centered in you. He who's begun the good work in you will never fail to finish it. Jesus, thank you. We praise you for that. We believe in that, Lord. And we pray, continue to just teach us to surrender, to take our cross up uh, daily, to die to self, to be others-focused, Lord. And may it just be a sweet, sweet aroma, the praise of our lives, the living testimony unto your holy throne. We pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's children pray. Amen. God bless you all. I love you. Please read chapter seven if the Lord should tarry. And uh, we'll keep digging on deeper to get that sure foundation. I love you guys.